When I think of a great coach, I think of someone who will listen, ask open-ended and challenging questions, and inspire others with stories about their experiences, victories, and even their failures. What doesn't come to mind is a person who has all the answers and dictates another what to do to succeed. Great coaches have the ability to guide individuals to their own solutions, developing independent, strategic, problem-solving skills. With great coaching comes the understanding of people, how someone may react to a situation, or the thought process behind people's reactions. We see it everywhere in business. We use different tools depending on what we want to understand. Tools which include short interviews, shadowing, relationship mapping, journey mapping, and of course, research. A little while back, I was lucky enough to be able to sit down with the Director of Marketing and Content Development for Epiphany Coaches and talk about both some personal and professional projects he's been taking on for the past little while and really dive deep into some interesting topics about the process of coaching, experiential learning, and self-authoring. So without further ado, welcome to The Think Train. Like imagine you're a CEO or someone stepping into a role, right? You have probably four or five different divisions of the company, all of whom are probably squabbling with another over something, right? Like there's, there's always tensions between, especially for example, like sales, marketing and customer service, mm -hmm. like those types of, those three things should be in act in unison, but rarely do they ever, right? Mm -hmm. Which, uh, which just makes for poor customer experience. But, um, so yeah, imagine you're a CEO going in, there's tensions between the departments. You have to build relationships with like everyone under you, basically like the others, well, not even everyone under you, but also your peers like in the C-suite. And then there's probably the VP level and the director level who you need to get to know. Plus you need to be seen as personable with the general, you know, general employees who might not always be interacting with the, with executives, right? So. And then you got to get a feel for the business and you need to understand like where they're going and why they're going, like why they're going in the direction that they're going and then figure out how you can add value to the business. So uh, the first hundred days is really where people get up to have to get up to speed, but especially I would say the first year, like, and that's just me personally. Um, like I don't really have a ton of, ex like I don't really coach uh, executives and stuff, right? Cause I'm just starting, but yeah, based on, based on my understanding, it's like, it's, it's real hard. Right. And you could, you could imagine like, yeah, yeah, imagine, yeah. Like I guess for, for younger listeners, like imagine starting your first job, uh, except you're the CEO and everyone expects you to just slam dunk everything. Right. So it's a lot of pressure. That's Zachary Strong, currently the director of marketing and content development for Epiphany Coaches. Everything from ads to website to copywriting to the content they're putting out, Zach is on top of it. A McMaster alumni and a Mars Apprentice alumni, you'll see him doing a lot of volunteer and general mentorship work across campus, and oftentimes see him doing keynote speeches and workshops generally for students as well. I was fascinated by the interest Zach shows in understanding others, mentoring and even coaching here and there, and I wanted to find out where exactly that interest stemmed from. Like from my point of view, I guess, like the story that I am aware of is that I was kind of always on the outside looking in and just curious about people. Um, and so like that's, that may have been where it was, where it started. And then it, like the motivations and, and, and everything kind of evolved over time. Right. 
in grade 10, they showed this like environmentalist film about, and I guess in grade 10, it was about 2005 or 2006. And around, I think it was 2003, I was playing a, I also remember I was playing a video game. It was the middle of summer. And I was just about to beat like a very hard level that I had tried for like two hours to beat. And then as I crossed the finish line or whatever, it was like, hooray. And then the power went out. It's like, what the heck was this? And then the power was out for three days. It was like that 2003 okay. blackout, right? So that was, that was real funny. And, and for some reason, there was a movie kind of about that and about like resource depletion and peak oil or whatever. So watched that in high school. I uh, don't even know why I decided to go. It just seemed interesting, I guess. And then ever like since, once I saw that, I realized like, wow, I want to be an engineer so I can work on renewable energy stuff. So, you know, went to school for engineering um, at Mac here and... Then in fourth year, uh, I was in a certain marketing class and a certain marketing professor pulled me aside and suggested that perhaps I take a look at marketing. And up until then, I hadn't really considered it as a career path. And uh, yeah, I guess like marketing 3MC3 was good because it was really hands-on and yeah, that got me curious. And so, yeah, once I was able to engage with Mars Apprentice and get a taste of like leadership development, which I hadn't really... Um, received up until that point. It was super powerful, and I just became fascinated with it. Now, out of school, Zach didn't go straight to Epiphany. He's actually had quite the long list of jobs. So I asked about what the journey after school looked like for him. I kind of feel like everything has just been like a happy little accident, kind of. Like, I've always just stumbled into the next big thing. And, yeah. and I don't know, like, maybe some people would, you know, look down on me for saying it, but... I don't like, I've always just done things that I find interesting. Um, yeah. And I, I just, I, I'm lucky enough that I have some amount of skills that people find valuable. So they, they, I generally get jobs that I find interesting and, you know, I get, I get, you know, they keep me around because they, they find me useful or something. But, um, but yeah, so I guess my first job after school uh, was with a construction company um, called Ira McDonald. They're local from Hamilton. Uh, great like family-owned company they've they've actually built a ton of uh, buildings around McMaster believe it or not so yeah it was fun so I, I worked with them for about a year doing inside sales and marketing so building their website helping them with some marketing but also uh, assisting um, assisting with the with, in the sales function mm -hmm. um, and construction is such an old industry and it's very regulated and all those things it was it was cool to get a taste of that that discipline, yeah. um, and I wasn't expecting that. So it was really cool, like putting together like RFPs and and things like that to to qualify for even the right to bid on the project because they just didn't want to evaluate that many bids. So, you know, that's just how construction goes. But you know, I was able to bring that kind of structure with me when I transitioned into a tech startup called Nick's Color Sensor, uh, and there are local Hamilton startup ton of Matt grads founded by a Matt grad, Matt Sheridan. Uh, and basically this, the story there is Matt um, is an, a mechatronics and engineering, uh, mechatronics engineering and management grad. So similar to myself. Um, I did EngPhys, but mechatronics and EngPhys are pretty similar. Yeah. And his mom is an interior designer. And the problem with interior design, at least with paint chips, is there's so many different brands and everything. You have to be, you have to lug around like bags of paint chips so you can match colors and things like that. And so Matt was just like, what is this? And then he just went and invented uh, 
as far as far as I can tell, it's like the best product in its class worldwide. And it has been for years, if, as far as I can tell. It's it's like an eyedrop. It's like the Photoshop eyedropper, but in real life. So you can put it against any wall and it will tell you the closest color in any almost any paint thing you could imagine, like, you know, Benjamin Moore, et cetera, et cetera. And, I, and I, it also tells it to you in RGB for uh, graphic design, CMYK in for print, yeah. right? And the, and the thing... The, one of the like one of the reasons I consider it to be the best is just the the form factor. It's it's a little black plat like it's a little black diamond basically, and it's durable. Like you can drop it and it doesn't break. It doesn't have like a screen on it. It's it links with your phone, right? Wow. And a lot of other you know color management solutions out there are just clunky and ugly and take forever to use, and they cost thousands of dollars. And this thing is just it it's just yeah it was a true game changer in the industry in my opinion so it was really cool i worked there for oh man i can't even remember i worked there for me like between a year year and a half uh i was the um director of business development so again say, some sales a lot of marketing um uh, some really cool opportunities there um and then i moved to an agency called marketing copilot uh, and Marketing Copilot does a lot of uh, digital, basically digital transformation work for B2B companies. Mm -hmm. um, and business to business marketing is, is difficult because the, the buying cycle is longer, right? Because it's usually a higher ticket purchase. So, it, you know, there's more company internal rules. Like people just don't go out and buy like, a, for example, like you just don't go out and buy like a car on a whim. Right, or if you're a company, you just don't go out and buy uh, like a CRM, just on a whim. Yeah, like you're evaluating yeah. alternatives. So, with um, with Marketing Copilot, we helped companies. Yeah, like part of my role was helping companies figure out how to reach their customer online and, and engage them in a conversation that was useful and beneficial for everyone. Mm -hmm. Super hard to do online, and and most most companies just straight up struggle with it. Yeah, so it was an agency that primarily worked with B two B companies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and then from there, moved, transitioned into Epiphany. Yeah, and like, honestly, all, all my roles were great. Like, I haven't had a, a bad job. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think the worst, like, I, like I, had a guy, I had some quote-unquote bad jobs, like, during university. Like, right after, the, uh, right after the recession in 2008, 2009, there were no jobs. Like, and I didn't have any connections, too, because, like, I don't know any one in the engineering profession, like, you know, I don't have sick family connections or yeah. whatever, right? No one to call in favors with. So, um, so I ended up working at McDonald's like one summer and it was, that was funny because you know how engineers always love to make fun of humanity students and stuff for working at yeah. McDonald's and Starbucks or whatever. So I was, yeah. that was, that was nice because I got the taste of, and actually McDonald's wasn't even a bad job. I think the worst job I had was being a bouncer at this uh, place called London Tap House. Yeah. Yeah. I was a, I was a doorman, believe it or not. Yeah. I, and for people who are listening who haven't seen me in real life, I'm about six foot one. I'm maybe 135, 140 pounds. Like I'm not uh, what you would classify as a brawler. Yeah. So that was that was an interesting job. Like a lot of conflict resolution. Um, I was the only person, as far as I could tell, in the building that had any first aid experience. So I was dealing with a lot of that that stuff. Which, you know. People would, people would, like it was, and that even wasn't a bad job because I got, ex I got exposed to how to handle myself in like dangerous situations.
some like imagine someone stumbles out of a building and their face is ripped open because someone smashed them with a glass bottle. Oh my yeah, what do you do? So that's kind of what I dealt with every every so often. Or there was one time there's a fight that happened in the bar, kind of spilled out. We thought we had separated people. Uh, and then one of the one of the, you know, parties involved was uh, smoking a cigarette kind of by one of the side corners of the building, whatever. And I heard this giant crash and like glass smashing. I look over, turn at the other person who was drunk, underage, got in his Jeep and tried to run this person over and slammed into the side of the building, kind of put himself through the windshield a little bit. His girlfriend was in the in the Jeep, like neither of them were wearing seatbelts because they were both stupid. And they had just tried to kill this other person with their car. Mm -hmm. So it's like over, over, I guarantee you it was nothing, maybe a misunderstanding. So it's like, and I was, you know, 30 feet away from that. It's like, what do you do? Like, how do you triage that? Yeah. So. Yeah, those, those types of things. I mean, that was probably the worst job in the sense that it was probably the most dangerous and the least pleasant. And just dealing with drunk people all the time. Yeah, I mean, even so all of my, I guess, quote unquote, corporate roles have just been great. I mean, I've been, been able to take a lot of things from the job that I was in and then apply it to the, my new role. And it just, it keeps building, you know? So I'm building like a little toolbox of, of skills and yeah, yeah. capabilities and also my approach and even how I speak to things, speak to executives about things and some of the perspectives I'm able to take on problems, you know. So you talk about getting into coaching and furthering your career in that sense, but what does uh, coaching exactly entail? Now that I'm kind of in this whole coaching thing, um, like my friends and people my age, they always ask, like, what is coaching, right? Because they think of sports coaching or some people ask if it's training, right? Some people ask if it's therapy. And it's, it's weird because it's kind of all of those things. Like there's some aspects of sports coaching. There's some as it feels like therapy, but it's not like it's a hard, hard, not therapy. If I don't know how to say that, but it's yeah. definitely not therapy. Um, although it can be therapeutic and it's also not training, although there's some skills development involved and things like that. But I guess coaching is unique in that um, it's completely client driven. So like in a normal conversation, for example, um, you know, two people are talking and it's, and one person is like, oh, wow, great weather out today. And the other person is like, yeah, absolutely. Right. There's now two data points and two sets of data in that conversation, right? Someone's opinion about the weather, someone else's opinion about the weather. And so most conversations are generally both people contribute data to them and, you know, you're kind of working out the connections between it. Right, which is why it's really hard to talk to someone with whom you disagree, because you don't have any shared data points that you yeah. can connect on. Um, and so with coaching, what coaches do is they are trained generally in, in listening and intuition and self-management. And there's a whole bunch of other skills, but those are just three that are coming to mind for me. Maybe it's just because it's the three that I'm working on hardest, but listening is, is obviously listening. Um, Self-management is really interesting because in a coaching interaction, as a coach, you don't actually want to inject your own information into the conversation, if that makes sense. Like you want to have a really powerful conversation with someone, but basically a coach's job is to uh, hold the space so someone else can basically think through issues and it's all their information. And the coach sometimes helps direct the focus and maybe challenge and be like, you know, it seems like you're saying, it seems like you have a really negative story about this. Like, what's the opposite story you could be telling yourself, right? And it's just helping poke at different perspectives. Um, and then the intuition piece is interesting. And that kind of comes from the listening piece. It's just, um, 
sometimes like you know sometimes you get like a gut feel about someone um with coaching it's sometimes like sometimes you get a gut feel as to maybe there's a question you need to ask or maybe maybe you can just tell that there's something that someone hasn't considered or or maybe they're really down on themselves and they just need to hear like like a, a specific piece of affirmation like maybe about something that you can tell that they're nervous about but they haven't quite you know said it to themselves or realized it mm-hmm. so there's there's an aspect of intuition there and and um yeah, so coaching, I mean, because of those three things, like coaches don't actually inject a lot of information. So it's hard to say what an average coaching session would look like. Usually what happens is the client chooses what they want to talk about, right? Like, and it could be anything. And then you you probably spend like 30, 45 minutes um, just talking about that thing and exploring it from different angles. And then at the, the important thing about coaching uh, as well is at the end of the session, there's a there's an act, usually an action item or two to take forward. So the, for the client to work on something over, like between the, between the coaching sessions. So there's growth happening kind of all the time. Changing focus. Uh, you've recently been working on a research project for the Mars Apprentice program here at Mac. Do you want to speak about that and run down exactly what it is that you were doing? If I had to kind of summarize everything, it's like the first survey gave us some insight into why people might have done Mars Apprentice and what they got out of it and things like that, right? So it gave us some insight into kind of how the program works and why it works. And then um, this past spring, I did, I think about 40 or 45 hours worth of interviews with the with some of the apprentices from week to week. Yeah. And that that gave us, man, and that, that data is so rich, like 40 hours of, it, that's, it, let's, let's just say it's a lot of typing and a lot of transcribing, but it's, um, it's so cool because it, it allowed me, because I'm usually in a mentorship role with Mars Apprentice, so I'm usually in there kind of with the teams, like helping them brainstorm and things like that. But in a researching role, I couldn't do any of that because I would be like corrupting my own data set. Yeah, yeah. So it was a real cool opportunity just for me to take a step back and and really just learn what they were going through. And, and you know, when they were talking about problems that they were having, instead of providing them with a solution right away, I was able to just inquire more into their thought process surrounding that problem. So uncovering, yeah, like uncovering just how they think, how they approach problems and things like that. So that that helped shed a little bit of light and I can't touch too much on that, but uh, the abstract thinking showed up in a big way there. Have you taken on any personal projects at the same time? I'm not gonna be publishing academic papers on it, but I'm gonna be publishing maybe some some essays and some collections of, of thoughts on a concept called self-authoring. And basically self-authoring is this whole idea of, you know, it's your it's like it's your life, you get to make the decisions in your life and things like that, right? But to what extent do people actually make decisions for themselves, right? Um, especially unique decisions that are authentic and uh, yeah, authentic to them, right? Like not living someone else's dream and things like that. And, and there's quite a bit of research um, that was done at Harvard for back in the back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Harvard and elsewhere, but Harvard especially in the 90s um, about this type of concept of just yeah, like how do you how do you live your life and you know how do you make decisions for yourself and things like that. So and there's there's quite a bit of research that's been done um, on students and self-authoring in university and there's uh it's not it it's not as prevalent as as uh, perhaps it should be, or as universities like to claim it is. 
Because if universities claim to be teaching critical thinking and they claim to be teaching problem solving, and then you put, you know, students, like with some of the research that was done on self-authoring, I think um, one of the authors is called Baxter Magolda, very easy to Google. Um, but just, yeah, getting them to talk about why they made decisions the way they did, finding that like a lot of them just were kind of accepting just what they were told and making decisions within that framework and never really questioning it. Mm -hmm. Like kind of in a way kind of trapped in the matrix, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's, so to me, it's a question of, you know, if that, if that way of living works for somebody and it does a lot of the time, like totally fine. Like a lot of people are just happy living, living their lives. Uh, but for some people who are looking for, for a different life, like it's hard for them sometimes to build self-authoring skills, mm -hmm. you know, and truly see yourself as like a unique individual and things like that. And, and that's one of the, one of the apprentices I think, or sorry, one of the challenges that happens in Mars Apprentice is it's a different, it's a different environment. Like you have to figure out, cause you have like, they all have a sense of self going in obviously, but it's like, it's a different environment than they're used to. And they're forced to kind of question themselves, right. And doubt themselves yeah. and, university especially or schools and society in general is like oh never doubt yourself like everyone is special all yeah. that stuff and it's like wrong dead wrong because if you if you're never forced to doubt yourself until the, like you're 25 or something yeah and it, it it nearly was it like that happened to me actually i went through one of those experiences it took me three years really? three years almost i guess it's 2018 now i would say march 2015 was when it hit me so yeah, probably about two, two and a half years, three years. What were some of the challenges that you encountered when it came to the research project for Mars Apprentice or even the self-authoring piece at that? Uh, well, you know what? I think the challenge challenge for me is, like, I guess, again, I guess one of my strengths is I'm good at finding data points. Yeah. Hard for me sometimes to communicate those data points, right? So, and in writing, for example, writing takes me a while, not because, like, I am a bad writer or something. It's just... Sometimes there's just so much, there's so much data out there. It's hard to condense it into a coherent narrative that people would understand, right? And also do that in a way that's enjoyable to read. Yeah. Um, and also do that in a way that demonstrates an understanding of the material and, and presents me as not like, kind of like a rogue, you know, type type person trying to, trying to be up here smart or something. So, um, it turns out there's a ton of data on this and like not even data, but just, just information across, like that's just scattered across almost every possible discipline, right? Cause there's some really good stuff about, um, like, I, 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 like, I guess, for example, ancient religions have a whole whack load of things on, on those types of topics, you know, kind of, just generally how like good advice on how to live and things like that. And that, that goes from like Confucius to the teachings of the Buddha, to the teachings of like the old and new testaments and, and, you know, world religions and even like indigenous uh, ways of knowing, right. Even though that's like a really, a really complicated topic specifically in Canada. Right. But there's, it seems to me like I'm not super familiar with all of that stuff, but just, Based on what little I know, it seems like there's just so much value there that partially has been destroyed because of government policy and just poor social engineering. Um, but also it's just, it's closely guarded now because it was nearly destroyed. And like, you know, I guess you could say the dominant culture tried to extinguish it. So there's a lot of value there waiting to be unlocked. But I guess, and 
moving from like kind of the like the religions and stuff some really good psychology started ha- like psychological research started happening in the 60s especially um and sociology really got into a good stride there um right and and then all the way up into the 80s and 90s now we have neuroscience and there's this whole thing in kind of like the leadership development industry about neuro leadership or whatever um and so there's just all these data points about how we grow, how we make decisions and, and how, we, how we make decisions for ourselves even, right? Mm-hmm. That's just out there. And it's so hard to, it took two years for me to even scratch the surface. And I still don't even, like, I still, I still don't even know a fraction of what's out there, but it's all just so, so useful. And I guess, so the main challenge is like finding the information, right? Because there's always this, there's always this, you know, split between what academics are researching and what's actually useful and applicable in the real world, right? Because academics are usually, they're researching stuff um, sometimes just in case. Like there's like the this incremental acquisition of knowledge that happens in the university. And a lot of people kind of look down on that because it, it's incremental and it's a slow go, but it's super important because only once in a while do you make like a big breakthrough. But that, that breakthrough is only possible because of, you know, decades of incremental yeah. research. So kind of, it, it was a challenge to kind of, to go through all that and understand it and try to piece it together. And, and also what it means, what it means for a change, like a changing demographic, right? Because we've now switched kind of from, uh, millennials are no longer students now, it's Generation Z. And this is a completely different ballgame because I was born in 89. I didn't have a flip phone until I was 16. I didn't have the internet in my house till I was 13. And even then it was dial up. So I was still outside, you know, going on bike rides for hours at a time, you know, hitting my, like throwing rocks at my friends and stuff and my friends throwing rocks at me or whatever, right? Like just stupid stuff. But um, yeah, so it's like Gen Z, first generation to grow up entirely wired to the matrix. Yeah. Right. And it, 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 as far as I can tell, and, and there's some suspicion, right? Like it's affected mood, right? Like Gen Z is way more susceptible to depression, anxiety, suicide rates in Gen Z higher, right? Especially, I think it, I think it's even worse for girls just because of social media and how it affects them. Um, that's at least what the research seems to be suggesting. Um, so yeah, it's like, it's just a different ball game. Like because all the all like a lot of the psychology and, and things have been like a lot of the data has been collected for people who who haven't been connected to the internet, right? So if the brain is working a little bit differently, or there's some some key differences. It could be that the whole game has changed, and I don't think I don't think so. Like, I don't think it's the whole game, but I think there are some nuances, and I think that was the challenge: is figuring out what the what the nuances were. And maybe not even figuring out because I still don't know, right? But just having developing some hunches and a line of thinking around that, mm-hmm. and like what are what are the dials that we can turn to, to help like today's students succeed for the future, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's always a moving target because you don't you don't exactly know what skills you need to train for the future, because education is always one step behind, but trying to aim one step forward. It's very so this whole thing is a moving target, and you're dealing with sometimes data that's data or writing or whatever that's 2000 years old versus 50 years old right and yeah so i guess that was that was the main challenge like there's just so much out there it's hard sometimes to to explain it so what's next for you what do you have planned moving forward uh 
at the moment I'm working on trying to communicate some of the things that I've been working on. So it's, and it's so hard. Like at this point, I, there's, there's the academic stuff that I'm working on. Like I'm working on hopefully a couple academic papers and that's going to take a little longer, but what I think I'm going to do is I'm putting together a couple web pages where since I'm a bit of a web designer, it's a fun little art project. Instead of tying together this pretty little essay and, and showing people how smart I am at connecting dots, I think I'm just going to take it, not even a shortcut, but I'm just going to see if it works. I'm going to take the data points themselves and just arrange them in an order that people can understand. Like it'll be not even understand, but arrange them in order that will hopefully provoke some thought along with some pictures. So almost like a scrapbook but with like quotes and things. And it'll be from all different disciplines, all different books, song lyrics, you know, all sorts of fun stuff. So yeah. that's, that's the plan. And just, just to see if I can almost, uh, if I can almost just transplant a perspective into someone's head, if that makes sense. Yeah, I know. And I'm, I also have a couple projects that I, I haven't really talked to anyone about them yet, but there's one that I'm looking into and I'm, it's a it's it's a personal thing, I guess, and I'm I'm going to be studying what I call deep collaboration. So, if you have you ever seen Sense Eight? No. What have you seen, Maniac? Yes. Okay, and actually, Arrival has some has some useful um, things in this. So, Maniac, it's like two people, like literally, like that is the most collaborative you can be, is like wired into each other's minds. Yeah. Essentially, the same thing with Sense Eight. It's like what happened if eight strangers became psychically linked around the world, right? Um, and they could share their languages and skills with each other and, you know, and also like help each other through tough times. Like it's a really good human story, but, um, so I don't, it's, I don't want to like create like a new type of human or like meld people or anything, but like, there's this whole idea of if we could get like a really deep, well-functioning team, like people who truly trust each other a hundred percent and they could lean on, lean on each other and things like that. Like what is even possible? Right, and Mars is kind of a microcosm of that, yeah, you could say, yeah. because it's it's six people, it's super high pressure. They're out of the, they're they're out of their depth, and like, the people who think they know anything about marketing are very quickly, you know, corrected by the time they get to the first boardroom, because they just like there's like basically anyone in the industry has forgotten more about marketing than the Mars apprentices know, but they don't they don't they don't realize that, and it's easy to forget, but, so it's like. So like, yeah, how do you, how do you take a group of people and even from around the world, for example, and just really deepen the level of relationship and level of collaboration and just see what happens. Like, you know, um, so that's one thing I'm looking at. And then the other thing I'm looking at is, um, yeah, kind of recontextualizing a lot of these really old ideas, um, in a new light and hopefully, you know, connecting some dots and, and stuff like that. Yeah, like modernizing. Yeah, and also how like for example, perspective and language and cognition, like a lot of people are studying things like that with relation to AI and machine learning, and that's something I want to get into as well. Um, that's a whole yeah, that's a huge topic. Yeah. Like could you like for example, like at the moment you can automate intelligence, you can automate facts and things like that, right? Um, very difficult to automate wisdom, right? But what if, what if there is a way that you could automate wisdom in such a way that it was able to support people through their own life journey? And part of the, like, and then again, this is the coaching approach, right? Because you don't want to inject any information into someone else's world, right? Because even if you're, inter even if you're injecting information that you think is good, you might not realize that they have like a judgment piece around that or something, 
right? Because you could congratulate someone on something, but maybe it's something that they're maybe insecure about or, or whatever. So the congratulations actually makes them question themselves. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's hard sometimes to know what people actually need in that moment. But if you could, man, imagine like we could somehow figure out wisdom to a point where we were able to just help people apply it in their lives and not give them like this grand religious scaffold, which those things are super important, by the way, like the, uh, like all the, all the world religions, I think, help people kind of transcend, you could say just like suffering in a way. But if there's a way we could do that in just almost like a stepwise incremental way and help people, you know, through like maybe some, some rough points, um, that could be, I think I find that really interesting because I've also seen, yeah, because I don't know, maybe because I grew up in Hamilton or maybe just because strangers talk to me all the time. So like, honestly, I sit in the street sometimes or like not in the street, but I sit at a bus stop or something and a stranger just comes up and talks to me about their life and tells me about the book they're trying to write. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, turns out, and this, this actually happened to me. Someone was telling me about their life and some challenges they were facing. And, you know, it's, it's someone like, more of like a blue collar class type person, like not someone that people would take seriously right off the bat. Right. They like this person probably doesn't get a lot of chances, but you know, I like talking to people. So talking to them and they had a, they had a book idea, right. Um, for like a, for like a fantasy book, actually a good idea. And like, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because they were facing some challenges and you know, it's hard. And this is kind of, where I think social justice hits the nail on the head is it's so hard uh, when people talk about privilege, like, I guess it's so easy to see how people can get just knocked back down to zero for, for little things, right? Like here's, like, here's a, here's a good example. Maybe you go into jail for shoplifting or something, right? And jail is not great because you just be, basically become a hardened criminal. Mm. Um, and you come out and it, you know, Maybe you have a drug problem that you developed in jail. Hopefully not. So let, let's say you don't, like good, good case scenario. Maybe you're celebrating, you go out to a bar and you start drinking, right? Maybe you get into a fight with someone because whatever, like maybe they bumped into you or, or maybe they insulted you or, may, or whatever, right? Yeah. You never, or maybe it was like a pre-existing beef. You're now drinking, you've lost control, you get into a fight with them, you get arrested, you end back up in jail, back to zero, right? Yeah. Um, and like in that moment, like, do, do I have a delusion that I could like intervene and help or something? It's like, no, but there's this whole thing of, and it goes back to self-authoring, right? It's easy sometimes for people to get caught up in the short-term decisions and forget about the long-term play and kind of the, when you're, when you're not say in a privileged situation, um, you sometimes have to focus on the short term. Like you get locked into focusing on the short term. And so it's so hard sometimes to think outside your own and think bigger for yourself, right? Um, like there are people, there are people that I know that didn't even finish high school, right? Because it just didn't seem, they didn't see the value in it necessarily, right? And it's not just like one person, it's like multiple, right? And, and I don't even like, personally, I don't really care. Like high school, not even required today, to be honest, because mm. we're like for various reasons, but I would recommend finishing high school, but it's, you know, you know what I mean? It's so if you, let's say you don't finish high school and 
you just yeah you get you just get trapped in this cycle where you're just locked into a shitty situation or you take out one of those micro loans from a from one of those like predatory places yeah. like the fast money or whatever and congratulations you're now locked into debt or maybe you you uh are miss a payment on your rent and then you're kicked out or whatever right and it's some of those pro like some of those problems are just unavoidable because the system grinds people at the bottom that's just what happens but some of it i think is avoidable if you can yeah like help people develop uh the ability to really just make decisions for themselves and yeah and it also goes too for like getting trapped in friendships or relationships or situations or jobs that you don't want to be yeah. in right like how many people right now i think it's something like 70 percent of workers in the u.s are not engaged with their jobs right and like sometimes sometimes you have to have a crappy job because you have a wife and a kid and like someone's got to bring home the food you know because who knows like maybe your wife is sick or she's hurt or maybe she's working too and you're paying for daycare and you're trying to pay for a car and it's like it's so hard so that's like that's some of the stuff i'm trying to focus on is like i don't want to i don't want to necessarily like help the world like i'm not trying to start a grand project or something but it seems like I've stumbled across a, on a lot of data points that are should be connected but don't seem to be connected between disciplines yet. So that's just that's what's next for me is just trying to get the attention of maybe some people that know more than I do and, and can help me with, with some of those things. So yeah. that's all we have for today's episode of the think train i want to sincerely thank zach for taking the time that he took out to get on this episode and share his knowledge and experiences you can follow his progress on zacharystrong.net that's z-a-c-h-a-r-y strong.net or even add him on facebook to reach out as always you can follow my instagram at thinkalexk or check out my blog at thinktrainpodcast.com I'll see you all in the next episode of The Think Train.